Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, which is the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. On this program, we discuss complex issues and events shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Uh, objectivism is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. To learn more about our publication and about objectivism, you should consider visiting our website, newideal.einrand.org. So our topic today is a pro-freedom approach to infectious disease. Uh, this is the title of a major paper recently released by the Institute uh, by Chief Philosophy Officer Ankar Gatte. Uh, we're going to have Ankar on in a, in a moment to discuss this paper. Uh, we're also going to have a second guest with us, Dr. Amish Adalja. Dr. Adalja is an infectious disease expert who way back at the beginning of the pandemic wrote, uh, I think, an influential Medium article called COVID-19, A Path Forward, and just recently published an article in the Washington Post uh, talking about the... Uh, the role of uh, your own value priorities in uh, deciding how to deal with this pandemic and the role that that uh, should play with governments. And so uh, I'd like to ask both Amish and Ankar to join me. Hi, Ben. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for, thanks for joining us today. So just a quick uh, introduction uh, to both of you. As I mentioned before, Ankar Gatte, author of the paper we're going to be discussing, is the Chief Philosophy Officer at the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, Dr. Amish Adalja is an expert in, in emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. He actively practices infectious disease, critical care, and emergency medicine in the Pittsburgh area. And if you haven't noticed him yet, he's all over the media doing interviews constantly on the coronavirus pandemic. In fact, he has to leave a little early today because he's uh, got an interview set up with, I think, with, N with NBC. So uh, thanks for finding some time in your busy schedule to join us today, Amish. Uh, I want to start off with just a little bit of context setting and background before I start asking some questions about this paper uh, and about the issues that it raises. So. This uh, novel coronavirus has been tracked in the United States since at least early March. Since then, something like 2 million Americans have uh, been infected with it. Uh, we now have over 120,000 people just in the United States who've been uh, counted as having died. And it, in large part, this can be traced to some basic failures of our government uh, early in the game. The CDC botched its initial round of testing. At the same time, the FDA even put up restrictions on, uh, on testing. President Trump was initially dismissive of the threat of the coronavirus. He then, once he started taking it seriously, started pitching various baseless miracle cures. Uh, he's now back to being uh, fairly dismissive of the threat since some of those cures haven't really panned out. Uh, in the meantime, you know, with that basic failure uh, of the government to react, state governments started enacting these statewide mandatory shelter-in-place orders uh, leading to the shuttering of many so-called uh, non-essential businesses. And between fear of the virus itself and these lockdowns, we've now had millions of people lose their jobs. There's been uh, trillions of dollars now added to the federal uh, budget deficit. Uh, and the the shock waves of this experience continue to be felt and I think will be 
for some time. So this is the, the background and the context that we're dealing with, and it's in reaction to this and commenting on this, reflecting on this, Ankar, that you recently penned really a major detailed and uh, systematic uh, philosophic analysis of our government's reaction. Uh, Ankar, can you give us just a, a like a two-minute summary? It's a lengthy paper. Can you give us a two-minute summary of the main claims of the paper, uh, especially regarding how you think our government could and should have handled things differently? Uh, sure. So the to give it in a nutshell, the way you started off sort of laying out some of the context here is what the paper's assuming, that the government, our government's response has been a failure. And the, if we were willing to admit that, then we can think about what would make for a better response. And other nations uh, like Taiwan and South Korea, and I think Amish, he's an expert on this, he can talk about what they've done in detail. But they've learned from past failures of dealing with infectious disease. And as a result, their response this time was quite a bit better than it had been in the past. And they were willing to admit we made failures in past outbreaks. What can we do better? And I think that's what we need to do. We, we need to really admit this has been a failure. And I think one of the principal ways in which it's been a failure, what it's showcased is we don't have good law that is directing our government to what it should be doing and restricting it from doing things that it should not be doing. So for a severe, when we're talking about severe infectious diseases like COVID-19, I think the government has a crucial role and the paper's arguing it has a crucial positive role to perform. And that positive role is protecting our freedom. Like that's the goal of protecting the freedom of individual Americans to live their lives. When people are walking around with a severe infectious disease that they can transmit to other people, you're interfering with other people's freedom. You're interfering with their rights. You're endangering their lives. And government should stop, step in to try to prevent that from happening when it is happening. And that requires that the government actively monitor for infectious disease outbreaks which I think there's reason to think that was not up to snuff in this case. And then to test, isolate, and track when there's, the, when there's real signs that, yeah, we have an infectious disease outbreak, we need to now start to intervene. And that, like, I think law should direct government towards that and away from wielding the power of coercive statewide lockdowns, of shutting a whole state down in cases when the government's not able to detect, like, like there's a lot of undetected carriers going around, I think it has to, what it should be trying to do is preserve our freedom to make individual decisions, but it should continue to try to test, isolate, and track as many people as it can who are carriers, and it should engage in more selective and targeted quarantines of suspected carriers because they've been exposed to known carriers or they're exhibiting some symptoms, whether even if we can't test, there's real reason to think, yeah, they probably are carriers, but not the statewide lockdowns. So I think we need law both to direct government to what it should be doing and didn't do in this case, and to remove powers of shutting down basically the whole country. And I think of it in a, in a nutshell that this, when you read the CDC guidelines for an influenza pandemic, it's roughly this, but the problem is they're guidelines. They're not law. So they don't act, the government can ignore them. And they were brought, these guidelines were brought up by the CDC in late February. And from, as far as I can tell, Amish would know more, I think about this, 
they were kind of thrown out the window. It's like they were brought up and you never heard from the CDC and this person again after they brought up, like we have guidelines for what to do. And so I think we need law to focus us and really focus government. So that's the basic argument of the paper. Thanks, Amish, would you like to say any more about that, especially in connection with the CDC guidelines? Yes, so this is something that we've been thinking about for a long, long time. This wasn't some pandemic that appeared out of nowhere. We already had two scares with prior coronaviruses, and this is a virus that spreads through the respiratory route. And this is something we've, I, I myself had worked on a major project looking at the characteristics of pandemic pathogens, warning about how respiratory viruses were going to be the next pandemic threat. And the CDC had very robust guidance and the, the best experts in the world by far. And they basically were, were silenced and politicized from the very beginning. And the, the person that was running this at the CDC, Nancy Massonier, she's been not heard of since she made that uh, statement about the United States needs to be ready for a pandemic. We need to start doing these things voluntarily because it spooked the stock market and the president didn't, didn't like her. And she basically has not uh, made an appearance on television since that time. And you can see what happens when an outbreak gets politicized, that no matter what the guidance was, it's always going to be sort of voluntary and thrown out. And, and then you have squandering of time in January, February, and March that led governors to the, the situation where we had statewide lockdowns. And I think they legitimately were fearful and scared and didn't know how, didn't have any kind of federal guidance. And our public health laws aren't such that there's a lot of that, that there's any kind of nuance to them. And this was a blunt tool that they were, they were used that nobody really wanted to use and nobody ever advocated using. Uh, it was just, that was the only way to do this when they were left with that situation. And that was the only action they could think to take and they wanted to take some action. I'm gonna skip one of the questions that I asked, I was thinking of asking, because I think both of you have already addressed it and, and, and asked this instead. Um, I mean, I think one thing that's common to both of your perspectives is uh, obviously taking the threat of this disease very seriously, while at the same time being critical of the kind of ham-handed approach our governments have taken uh, with these lockdowns. Uh, why is it, do you think, so many people think you can't do both? Uh, rather, why do they think that if you take the uh, lockdown seriously, you can't be skeptical of this approach um, and, and vice versa? I mean, for my read of it, one of the major things is what Amish just brought up about how politicized this was. And so early on in January, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the worries were this will, if we admit that there's a new novel coronavirus and it, 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 it at least poses a threat, how big a threat. And so um, to the U.S. and actions need to be taken and voluntary actions I think there's pretty good evidence that for election, re-election considerations, impact on the stock market, on the economy, that it was evaded. Um, and so you've very early on made it a political issue that what, whether you think this is a threat or not does not depend on facts, on the evidence. It depends on your polit political affiliations. And that has carried through and it's carrying through to this day. I mean, one of the recommendations in the paper is that if we're going to have real law and real public health officials who aren't just sort of giving guidance and some advice that can be ignored, it has to be on the model of something like the Federal Reserve, which is thought to be apolitical in the sense that it's, okay, we're managing 
whether government should be doing this or not, we can leave aside. But what the Fed is doing, it has a dual mandate to manage inflation um, and unemployment or unemployment. And it's supposed to have a long-term perspective and not be making decisions based on the election in six months and so on. And you really need that. I think what this episode has showcased, you really need that for public health. If it's politicized, it's a real, real uh, danger. I would just add that, that I think there's something different. If you go back to anthrax in 2001, there wasn't politicization of that. Uh, if you even look at 2009 H1N1, which was at the very beginning of President Obama's term, there wasn't much politicization that occurred. But then you see, you fast forward to around 2014 with Ebola and you start to see politicization, especially from, uh, at that time, the Obama administration was managing this fairly well. They were not instituting travel bans. They, we had testing set up. We were dealing with the cases. We had some mishaps that happened in Dallas. And you could see on the right, there was just this clamor that this was going to take over the entire country. And I remember getting calls from Republican congressmen saying, you know, I'm really, I think that they're going to bungle this and we're going to have this pandemic of Ebola in our, and it was never really uh, based on any kind of science. And now you've seen the exact opposite. The same people that talked about how the fears of Ebola have no fear against this coronavirus that actually spreads in a way that did cause a pandemic. And, and I think that this has been, from the start, it's even hard people in the field to have any kind of position because whatever your position is people try to see if it's aligning on one side or the other so it's very hard to even be an objective voice here because people are so used to the politicization of it and i think that's made it so much harder to deal with this and to break through with any kind of real actions uh and, and this is something i think hopefully is not the new normal with with pandemic response because everything has always been politicized in general with infectious diseases but this is uh to a point where the whole outbreak and, and the, the suffering that everybody is having is directly related to the politicization and people's inability to, to break through that and do things because they're so worried about uh, upsetting uh, the president on one hand or, or, um, or the other party on the other hand. So it's, it's become impossible and almost dogmatic and, and uh, very hard to, to think about this in any kind of scientific way without having to get pulled into the politics. So, uh I think one of the things that it means to both uh, take the threat of the disease seriously while being skeptical of the mandatory lockdowns is to still emphasize the importance of uh, voluntary social distancing. And uh, Amish, that's something that you were doing at the very beginning uh, with your Medium article. And then you've now uh, really doubled down on that approach in this, this piece that you published in the Washington, Pro, in the Washington Post commenting on the protests, uh, protest visit grandma, the pandemic's next phase means weighing uh, risks and values. Uh, and in this piece, you argued that, especially with these recent George Floyd protests, people are starting to begin to realize that there are some value, as you put it, there are some values that are worth pursuing even in the face of risk. And this includes not just the cause of uh, justice in response to police misconduct, but other values in life as well. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what you think this means, both for personal decisions that we have to make with regard to our health uh, and with regard to implications for government policy? So right now in this pandemic, I think people are starting to realize that the virus is not going anywhere. Stay-at-home orders have been lifted but there's still this risk and people have to make these decisions on what's, what do I want to do now? Restaurants are open or I, can I go visit my grandparents? Can I go do this? Can I do, go do that? And I think that they're all often looking to me for like a direct answer, yes or no, black or white, yes, do this, don't do that. And I don't think that's the right way to do it. And I don't think I as a physician can actually help them make that kind of a decision. I really, what I tell people is that, that, that 
there's going to be this non-zero risk with any activity we do. This is a virus that's established itself in the human population. It is a new normal. So every activity you do is going to have some level of risk of either contracting or spreading that virus. And the question comes down to what's essential to you? What's important for you to do? What, what are your values? And weigh them against the risk of this virus. And we do this with all kinds of risks. When we go outside, and I talk about this in, in, the, in the article about you know, driving on a snowy road to go do something, maybe that's something that you think is worth the risk. And I think it's going to be different for each person. And I think we can't just dogmatically apply social distancing recommendations to people and, and then shame them if they don't follow them. People may make mistakes. We know that that's going to happen. They're already happening. If I just walk a few blocks, I can go to a bar and I can see people making mistakes right there in front of my eyes. But I think that's what we have. That's how we should have been thinking about this outbreak from the beginning, that that there, there are certain circumstances when someone's contagious, for example, or someone has a high risk exposure that the government intervenes to prevent them from spreading, that the government also has to, to be to be uh, really robust at the contact tracing and trying to solve some of the hospital problems that they themselves created uh, by the structure that we have in our health system. But when it comes down to individual decision-making, I think that the, that public health authorities in the government can give people advice and tell them what the risks are and how to think about minimizing those risks and reducing the harm that the virus might cause them. But I do think we have to move forward in a way that allows people to get back to their values because it, this is not the way, um, this is not sustainable. This virus is not going to disappear. And I think many people thought it was going to disappear. So they thought, okay, we can do these shutdowns for a little bit and then it's going to be fine. And that's not the case. And that's what we're seeing in places like Arizona and Texas and Florida. People who think it is fine because they were lulled into this false sense of security by the by these shutdowns thinking that this was gonna make the virus go away and it didn't. And I think we needed to have a more nuanced approach from the beginning saying this is a new normal. We have to figure out a way to move forward just like people did in the past with other outbreaks that became endemic or established in their populations. And I think that was lacking in the very beginning. And many of us in the field that tried to tried to talk about this were kind of shouted down and it was kind of taboo to think about some middle way forward is how I put it, where the virus isn't running rampant and people are taking actions on the one hand and on the other, you're not locking people in their houses and preventing them from living on the other. It's very interesting to think about how the lockdowns could encourage this false sense of security, making it seem like the government is taking care of everything with them such that when they lift them, they lift them, that must mean things are okay. Uh, and you're emphasizing we no, we really need to be the ones to take responsibility for our own health. Related so to that, I want to... One last thing, in Pennsylvania, sure. when, a, when a county opens up, it's called green. That gives people the wrong message. It's not green out there. It's still, it's still dangerous. It's still, there's still going to be transmission. So calling it green, that people, the connotation is everything is go, everything is full speed ahead. And that's not the case. And this is a consequence of the early on of that it was politicized. And, and I think the actual facts evaded that you, you're not going, to, you shouldn't, I think, expect rational action from people if you're distorting the information that you're providing. Um, and you can downplay the threat. I think when you looked at some of the models, you would get the model, okay, we're going to do a shutdown and the cases are going to go down. So, and they just clipped, but that is the news stories didn't show, well, this is what's going to happen when you lift the lockdowns and you're going to get a surge in cases. So people, it gave the impression that, oh, okay, it's going to go away and then everything's going to be fine. So there was so much misinformation about this. And then if you say, oh, look, people can't take rational action, so we have to lock them down. I think that's a wrong, I can understand why people are drawing that conclusion, but I think it's a wrong conclusion. If early on we were saying, look, this is how to think about it, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, it's not the flu, it's more severe than that, and so 
then people would have individually voluntarily taken rational or much more rational actions than what's going on now. So with that in mind, I want to bring in our first super chat question and again, remind uh, YouTube uh, viewers that you can use super chat now to prioritize your questions. We have a question I think applies to both of you. Uh, are, are philosophers pro and amateur more likely to be mindful of the little things they can do to help protect themselves from a pandemic? What are, what are the little things or big things even uh, that uh, each of you are doing uh, to take more responsibility for your own health, given that you can't just offload it entirely onto, onto government. You want to go first, Ankar, because I'm kind of a skewed perspective because I take care yeah, of right. okay. yeah. <laughs> Um So I, I think this is important in thinking of these as individual decisions because it's easy for me. I work at home. I worked at home before the pandemic started. Um, it's, so it's easy for me to do a lot of social distancing. And I am actually, because I have immediate family members who I think are susceptible to, if they got COVID-19, to have it, it being a complicated case. So I have real individual reason to do it. And the cost of doing it is not that high. It's I haven't lost my job. It's not my whole livelihood's going to be wiped out. And in so in making that calculation, yes, I've decided to do it. but it's, I've noticed that when people talk about the lockdowns, they're much too easy to focus just on their individual case. And if their individual case is really difficult, then it's, oh, lockdowns are crazy. And if it's relatively easy for them to continue working and so on while doing more sorts of distancing, it's, yeah, we should lock down everyone. But that you're not really thinking about individual lives. So for me, it's relatively easy, but for somebody who his whole life involves interaction, physical interaction with other people and so on, it's, you really have to think about, okay, what am I going to do given that this is the contours of my life? Um, and it is an individual decision and it should be an individual decision. So for me, because I'm a physician and I've been taking care of coronavirus patients since, since March, it's my exposure risk is much higher than other individuals. So I'm taking care of patients with personal protective equipment. It's something that I knew is what I signed up for. Um, I would think in my day-to-day -day life, I probably have done less of, of the, the modifications that some people are doing. I'm not Cloroxing my mail or I'm not Cloroxing my groceries. I am uh, trying to avoid, if I go, if I'm walking around and I see restaurants are open in Pittsburgh where I live, um, if something looks very congregated and very messy, I don't go into that restaurant. I, I find ones where there's a lot of space open where I think people are actually being mindful of the fact that the virus is there. I, I'm, I'm very careful about you know washing my hands frequently when I'm, when I'm in those areas and trying to avoid any kind of crowds. But I think, again, this is, again, my risk tolerance is much higher than most people's because I, I'm taking care of these patients and I tend to be uh, someone that, that is more risk uh, risk tolerant and I don't have any high risk factors. I live alone um, and I'm an essential worker. So I've been in the midst of this. So I think that there's different differences for, for every person. And I think what, what Ankar said is really important that social distancing is a luxury that many essential workers don't have. And I think that's what you're seeing when you look at these, you know, the African-American uh, population, two times more likely to die from this in New York City. The same is true for other uh, populations and it's because there's so many essential workers. So you have to realize when you're the, when people are pontificating about social distancing, that it's not equally easy for people to do. And it actually magnifies some of the poverty issues that we see. And, you know, I know people talk a lot about inequality. It actually, it actually is preying on that, that, um, 
that issue and making those problems worse because certain people can't and can't, and can't do that because they maybe live in a place where there's super high population density, they're an essential worker, they have to take the public transportation. And the same is true with closing schools. So if you go to a private school where every child has an iPad and every child has high speed internet, that's one thing. But if you're in an inner city school where they, nobody even has, uh, they don't have laptops and they don't have high speed internet, how can you do that? And those children are completely disadvantaged by the school closure, whereas people who are in the private schools or the very ritzy suburban districts everything is the same for them. And I think that this is going to magnify all of these societal problems that people have talked about. And I think that's why a lot of people are looking at the George Floyd process in that light saying, you know, African-Americans have been disproportionately impacted by this virus because of, the, because of social distancing being this forced thing on them that they couldn't social distance. And then the, the fact that when, these, when some of these riots occurred, some of the testing sites in African-American communities had to be shut down because they were unsafe. So this was, the whole thing is kind of magnifying all of these social ills that have been longstanding. And I think it's important and not, and people don't have a, a proper objective perspective on it. They look at only their own situation and not really thinking about what it means for the individuals that this impacts outside of them as a whole, looking at their individual lives. So, uh, We've talked about uh, the ways in which uh, government has both failed to do enough and ways in which it's, uh, we think, probably done too much. Uh, I'd like to try to better understand, especially the first part, uh, before talking about some models for success, why it failed so badly uh, to deploy testing and tracing and isolation. I mean, you'd think, especially Ankar, given the way you characterized the role of government as protecting individual freedom and how protecting against infection is a component of that, you'd think that, that would be one of the most basic functions of government. Uh, but government does so many things and is involved in our lives in so many different ways. Nevertheless, it overlooked uh, and failed to prioritize this. Do either of you have thoughts on why it failed so badly? And I know, Amish, you've uh, written some about this and uh, you've in particular been critical of the, uh, the way that our public health policy budget has been put together. Do you have thoughts on the kind of the etiology of this failure? I think it's, a, it's really a longstanding problem that we've had that pandemics go through this and infectious disease emergencies go through this cycle of panic and neglect where people get very worried about anthrax or bird flu or zika or ebola or or, or whatever or h1n1 and then when that fades from the headlines it disappears and they don't think about this in a long-term way and when and, and that is reflected in the cycles of the budgets for those people that work on these issues, that they go up and down. And even during the Trump administration early on, the pandemic uh, task force that was part of the, the National Security Council was disbanded when John Bolton became National Security Council. And that, that shows you that this is not something that's prioritized or thought about. And even in the new Pentagon budget for, for, pan, for pandemics, they're actually decreasing it again. It, so it actually makes no sense to me why they don't think about this as part of the core function of, of government, that they're worried about missiles, but not worried about infectious disease emergencies or bioterrorism in the same manner. And I think this, this should not be the case. You also have to remember that public health has become very different. It's a very diffuse concept. It originally started out to be about communicable disease. Think about typhoid Mary or plague. And, and that's what, that's actually local public health departments started back in the 1300s and with, with the Black Death. That's why it was started. Now it's morphed and they're worried about you know, school lunches and kids wearing helmets when they ride bicycles and air pollution, all these very like sexy topics that politicians love. They don't really care to talk about, and I've used this example before, how great their health department is at tracking cases of gonorrhea and keeping syphilis down. 
that's, those are the people that are doing this, the ones that are doing the contact tracing, and it's not prioritized. And there's so many other distracting elements that have been put into public health that they've moved away from their core function. And, and then it's something that's not prioritized or thought about. And that's what, that's what's happened. And, and we never really, we thought we were the, we were actually ranked the number one uh, prepared country in the world for pandemics. And we've done probably one of the worst jobs, I think, uh, if you look at it pound for pound with the resources that we have. And no, none of us thought that we would squander it this badly with diagnostic testing being such a problem for months and months and months and getting to the point where governors use economic shutdown. So this is just a whole full-scale failure and lack of federal leadership that's been there from the beginning uh, with this pandemic. And very, very embarrassing for people in this field who who often go to international meetings and thought, you know, you're from the United States. I've been at NATO meetings where I get, you know, extra prestige because I work on these issues in the United States. But I mean, now it's kind of embarrassing that you're from the United States on this issue. And in the paper, part of why I'm arguing that this needs to be enacted into law, I don't think that like that's a magical solution, but I think it is more likely that government will take this seriously and think, okay, we have to budget for this and we have to have the resources to actually execute on this. If it were enacted into law, not just, oh, there's some guidelines that, okay, we can throw back on the shelf if we don't feel like doing that. So it's not a, it's not a panacea, but I think it makes it more likely that we would actually be prepared. So let's talk about some uh, role models, perhaps, that we can look to internationally in seeing how government uh, should uh, function in the face of a pandemic. Now, uh, Ankar, let's start by talking about the Swedish model. This is something that you talk about in your paper. A number of commentators who are typically critical of the lockdowns have held Sweden up as a kind of uh, exemplar here. You discuss Sweden, but you think there are strengths and weaknesses to the Swedish approach. Could you say more? And then Amos should be curious to hear what you think about the Swedish case as well. Yeah, let me start with the weakness, which is that if it's right that government should really be focused on testing, isolating, tracing cases, that's not what Sweden did. It seems to be, from what I can tell, a conscious decision that we're not going to do this. Um, so it wasn't they botched it and then um, it, it didn't happen. It seems a conscious decision, but I think it's wrong to do that. So that on the weakness, but not having not done that, they didn't then issue statewide or the equivalent in Sweden lockdowns. They didn't lock down the whole country. And the law, from what I can tell, they probably can override this, but the law prevents the governments from engaging in these kinds of statewide indefinite lockdowns. Um, and I think it's right that the law prohibits that kind of action, but it should require the testing, isolating, tracking that didn't happen. And other aspects that I think are better, from what I can tell, but again, I think Amish would know more about this, the Swedish public health department is not political. So it's more apolitical, like the model of the Federal Reserve. Um, and so it was more transparent, more open about what it was doing and why. Uh, and the result, I think, is that the Swedes took it more seriously. We need to do some social distance, voluntary, but we need to do this. Um, and I think that's what you do see in Sweden. So it shows you could have a voluntary approach. And if you couple the voluntary approach with what government should be doing, testing, uh, isolating, tracking, then I think you can have the best of both worlds. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think that Sweden's approach was something that was 
lots of us in the field are highly skeptical of going for herd immunity when you need to get to like 60, 70% of the population infected, knowing that this virus does have the ability to kill certain populations at a high rate. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, in Sweden, for example, in their, their elderly care homes getting hit particularly hard. And you, if you're going to allow this virus to kind of, if you're not going to put that kind of those measures, the lockdowns in, the only other way that you, and I think this is a standard for anything you do is has to be, you've got to find the cases and you've got to isolate them and you've got to stop the transmission. You can allow people to do things, but people are not even going to go out and do things and think it's safe if you're not doing that, if they don't know who's infected and who's not infected. So you have to remember that that's also part of it is that, that people are not going to go back to normal in, unless they have the assurity that they're not going to be running into this virus on every street corner. And you're going to, if, we, if, we're, if our goal is to get back to what it was like in 2019, testing and tracing and isolating has to be part of that because this is now a new, a new uh, risk factor. And I think that Sweden's approach without doing that led to predictable results, led to criticism. And uh, you can even see now their, their, their chief epidemiologist saying it was a mistake what they did. Uh, so I don't think it's a model. I do, although I do think that the public health laws that they have do make a lot of sense and are something that we would need to codify. I think it's very different here when you get to public health law because most of the federal laws are not what are at play. It's actually state laws that are actually running this. And states are the ones who usually deal with epidemics. The CDC doesn't get involved until the state actually asks for them. And we have this federal system and I don't know if that's the best approach or, or if, there, if it is better to have this done at a state level. In general, we don't get outbreaks like this that, that become such a, an issue that you need federal guidance all the time, that states are pretty capable. And even most of the outbreaks aren't even done at the state level, they're done at the county level or a municipal level. Uh, and I think that there, you really have a hodgepodge of laws. And in the United States, they do have very, very broad powers to, to do this type of thing when, when an emergency declaration is put into place. And I don't know what the solution is, but I do think like everybody in public health law should read Ankar's paper because it does uh, put things in a really good philosophical perspective that I think is lacking in general in the field of public health law. Let's talk about the other uh, model that you hold up, Ankar, which is uh, the Taiwanese and the South Korean approach. Uh, how do they compare to the Swedish approach? Uh, how would you evaluate them in relation to it? And what should we do that's, that they've been doing? I'll say just a word on this because English is the real expert on this. But when you read what happened in Taiwan and South Korea, I think one of the lessons you get is they were just much more willing to face the reality of the situation. And Taiwan in particular is, I think, rightly suspicious of China. Um, so they did not trust when the news started coming out of Wuhan, China about, well, there, something strange is going on. They did not trust official reports. They sent their own investigators into China to look at this. And it's by January 1st, they were test, they didn't have a test, but they were testing for symptoms at the airport for people coming in from China. So. And it's just, it's a willingness to actively monitor for this and to spring into action early and not evade what is going on. If anything, be overly cautious, then pretend, oh, nothing's going to happen and nothing's uh, going to go wrong. South Korea was less, uh, it, it acted later, but still had a massive perspective on, okay, we need to test, isolate, and track. And so it just revealed what it can be like if you have a government that's more focused and more prepared. 
Yeah, so I agree with both of these things. And I have a lot of firsthand experience because I was part of a team that went to Taiwan 10, 10 years after SARS in 2013 but to evaluate their preparedness for pandemics. And it's interesting because we had to go because the WHO can't go because they're not part of the WHO because China has prohibited them from being part of the WHO. So we went there as a surrogate and looked at their preparedness. And I would tell you from the top down in every like nook and cranny there, it is very well embedded in them that they have to be prepared for an infectious disease outbreak starting in China, either natural uh, or unnatural from bioterrorism. So they've really gotten this down to a science. Epidemiology is considered like a, a path to politics there. Their vice president is an epidemiologist uh, and they've got many epidemiologists and high levels of government. So this is something that they think of as core to their government function is keeping their island safe from infectious diseases. And what they did is very quickly assumed this is a novel coronavirus. This likely probably has some ability to transmit human to human. Even though China's not saying it, we're going to prepare for that fact. We're going to catch these cases as they come in and, and deal with it. And, and this is, they, they basically flex the muscles of a very well-prepared system, well-oiled system that was hit by SARS in 2003 and, and had really taken the best evidence and best advice from actually us in the United States about how to do this. The same type of advice we give our own government, which isn't followed, was followed to the T in Taiwan. And I think this is what it should look like. Uh, the same is true to a lesser extent in South Korea. They got hit early on with a religious group actually being infected and then it infected younger people, which helped them because if it infects a nursing home, you're in a big problem very quickly, but there it infected younger people. And what they did is actually not just rely on the government to make the test. They actually flexed the private test system pretty quickly. We were relying almost on, C on CDC tests for months and months and months, whereas they'd used their private industry to do this. And again, they were hit a couple of years prior with Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is another type of coronavirus, which has a high case fatality rate, about 30%. And they were embarrassed by that response because this per their, their cases spread in hospitals and it went out of control. And the government actually was called into question. People lost confidence in the government over the handling of Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And they basically vowed to never let that happen again. And they did a really great job of putting in place the safeguards. Uh, that's not something that many other countries did. And I think those two need to be the exemplars. And I do think that this is a lot of really um, good justice to the cause of Taiwan. And I think if one thing comes out of this, it's the world should look at Taiwan as a model for doing this and not look at China for this and realize that, the, that everybody should be hearing from Taiwan in the World Health Assembly, in the World Health Organization. And we should not be placating China and keeping out one of the exemplars of public health uh, from the organization. Good. So let's talk a little bit more about the legal aspect of this. Ankar, you've, uh, you, you stress in the paper the importance of encoding government's powers into law and in prohibiting it from doing certain things in law. I know that the paper gives more details of what kinds of laws there should be, but for our viewers, can you, can you summarize a little bit more about what those laws should look like, what the different categories of law should be? I mean, one of the, the major things is that it, we need real thinking about infectious disease because it's not every infectious disease government has to test, track, and isolate it. It has to be of a severe enough uh, um, degree that we would say, okay, yeah, here now when you have, you're carrying this infectious disease and transmitting this infectious disease, the government can coercively step in and prevent you from doing so. And we don't even think of that for the seasonal flu, that it's, I mean, you can infect other people, the vaccine's not 100% effective. And yet we think of it, and I think rightly, we think of it as, okay, this is one of the risks of living in with other people and in more highly uh, densely populated areas. You have a greater chance of getting infected from people you, strangers you interact with. 
but that it's it's on you as the the non-infected person to think, okay, what kind of precautions am I going to take? Am I going to really increase my hand washing during flu season? In Asian countries, people wear masks more than they do here. And you, so people can think at an individual level. It's So one of the major things the law has to think about is, okay, by what criteria do we decide this infectious disease, in this case, COVID-19 and SARS-2, is the pathogen SARS-2, is, okay, this is severe enough and here's the evidence for what why it's severe enough. It transmits uh, in a in a considerable way. In this case, it's a respiratory virus. It's you get real complications when people get it, including death. But it's not just death. I think that should matter. Um, so there's a whole host of things that the law would have to think about. And part part of public health would be saying, okay, yeah, here's the evidence for why this is an infectious disease. And in the case, a new infectious disease rises above the threshold. It's severe enough that government has to step in. And that really has to be government's first decision. Yeah, we've got evidence that we need to take action. And that has to be codified in law of what the criteria is and what the evidence would be that the criteria is such that, okay, government has to step in. And then it would be, you would have laws directing, okay, we have to think of how do we test? How do we isolate? What do we have we put in place in order to be able to isolate? And again, you'd have to think what's the evidence for this that to think, okay, we're even gonna test people. It can be that whether they're coming in from China or more broadly, it's just, we're in a pandemic now, it doesn't really matter where you're traveling from, but there has to be this kind of screening and so on. And that, it, it, for a emergency situation is an easy place for people to panic, including government officials, they're just human beings. It's, and law helps you not panic in the case of government officials. It helps you, okay, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is how we're supposed to proceed. And the more this is codified into law, it's you've given them now something functions like guidelines, but there are guidelines there can't throw out. And that is, you'll get a better response, I think. So that's, I mean, there's other aspects of it, but that's one at the first steps, I think a crucial aspect. Amish, are there concepts from infectious disease medicine that would be usable in encoding the kinds of laws that Ankar is talking about? Yes, and I still think it would be difficult. And in the paper, I think he makes a great case that there are some that are very easily above that threshold, like Ebola, for example, that you don't want people that have with Ebola. You want the government to know about the cases of Ebola that are occurring in a country so that they can protect people. But where you draw that line, you know, that it's above seasonal influenza, at and then where, where it falls is kind of hard to think about. What principles I would look at is, you know, how lethal is this disease? How many percentage need to go to the hospital? Is there an effective treatment for it? Is there an antibiotic or an antiviral or antifungal that you can give people? Is there a vaccine for it? Is it something that people are choosing? So for example, with measles, that they're choosing to, to, go, to not be vaccinated against. Is there, um, what, what do we know about this virus, this pathogen? Do we know all the all the characteristics about it. is it well characterized or is it something new or the information is is evolving what is the incubation period and, and what is the percentage of people that can spread it during the incubation period and how important is that how easy it is is it to identify those people all of that has to play into this and it's going to be a hard list to make and it's going to be a list that has to be adaptable and changing and and over time i think it would evolve 
there, but there clearly are ones that would be on. And right now, for example, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, we think about all of those, those as things where the government intervenes. But I think it gets harder when you have a novel pathogen. But I think if you put these principles into place, you can think about, think about it. And I, I, Ankar does it there, and I talk about it in my, my paper on the characteristics of pandemic pathogens, trying to think about what it is about pathogens that rises to that level. And it's, it's right now that there isn't really anybody thinking about it in that they've taken lists about scare of scary things mostly scary things that came from the soviet biological weapons program and put those on the list and then they don't really know what to put on what else to put on there and i think that really is reflected in the fact that you do get this panic response because they don't have a, a, a an algorithm and i think that that's one of the, the values of that ankar talks about there is trying to think about what that threshold is everybody knows that there should be a threshold they haven't really thought about it in philosophical terms. And I do think there are some infectious disease principles you can put into place to try and help you right size that list, but it's never going to be perfect. And it's always going to be something that you have to kind of continue to refine. So this is a question about the kind of the on the ground political reality that we're dealing with today. Uh, Ankar, you've, you've written uh, this paper arguing for certain kinds of laws that should be adopted and mm -hmm. implemented. What will it take, practically speaking, to convince our leaders that we should have these kinds of laws? And uh, are we talking, yeah, are we talking about uh, uh, federal uh, law? Do you, is that where it should be? Or, sh or should, should states adopt better laws? And, and what's the means to getting to that end? Um, so I think it's both. It's both federal and state laws. Amish was talking about there, it's, I mean, we have a federal system, so the states have a lot of power. And the police power is often thought about, the states are really what wield that and for public health. And then it's at a state level. I mean, it was the governors who were issuing these lockdowns and so on. So part of the law for sure has to be directed at the state level. Um, but federal, it particularly when you're thinking, we're thinking global pandemics. And so it's not just what's happening in the US, it's what's happening in other countries and so on. And I think that's much more a federal issue to think about like is a new disease emerging in China. It's not Washington state or Arizona that's going to be thinking about that. It has to be the federal government that thinks about that. So I think it's both governments. You, we need better laws to sort of direct them and require I mean, the law is you, the government's there to execute it. So it's you're requiring government to do this. So presumably they will then have to budget for it and so on. Um, and I think it's, I think changing any law is hard. And when you have a government this size, there's an enormous inertia. So I don't think this is easy, but I think it's comparatively easy because this should not be a political issue. It has become politicized, but there's no reason it should be political. And I think everyone should be able to think, okay, our response has been a disaster. Um, whether you're, what you're really concerned with is the number infected and dead, well, that could have been a lot lower. Whether you're concerned with the economic destruction, that could have been a lot lower. So you should be able to get people across the political aisle to agree that, yeah, we could have done something better. And if we enact better laws, it's at least in, improves the chance of doing something better. And it's, I don't, it's relatively specific. So it's not get rid of the Federal Reserve. I mean, there's people, I'm actually on that side that I don't think government should be running the whole monetary system. But it's not laws like that. It's not abolish this whole department and so on. It's much more focused and targeted. And in that sense, I think the political battle to get better law, if people were really 
advocating for this and asking their elected representatives to do that, there's a realistic chance that it can be done. And if Taiwan and South Korea and other nations can do it, why can't we? Amish, you've uh, advised many government officials in both state and local and federal levels. Uh, how receptive do you think they would be to the kinds of laws that Ankar is advocating for? I think you would find people that are receptive to it. But what ends up happening is that when there's an emergency declaration, all those laws get suspended. And that's the, that's the problem that I worry about. We can have those great laws, but they would get thrown out with a disaster declaration. And I think that's a, a broader discussion about the way that governors and, and the president can declare an emergency and then basically have unlimited powers and basically make everything else null and void. And I think that's a, a larger, it's a harder issue to, to figure out. I do think having those laws on the books, and I think some places do have those, have laws similar to what Ankar would advocate on the books. So if you look, for example, in Wisconsin, where the Supreme Court ruled against uh, the governor there, that's your home state, right, Ben? So uh, that, that they, they, there are places like that. There is a Supreme Court case going on right now in Pennsylvania regarding this. So there are people reflecting back on those laws and what they're kind, going after is the emergency declaration. I do think people want to get this right. Right now, there is a window of opportunity to fix things, and I think we, we shouldn't waste that or squander that. Right now, I've been focused on trying to get them to get pandemic preparedness at the federal level, better funded and better programs in place. Uh, I haven't gotten into the this specific public health laws. I've just been trying to create help them create programs to prepare for the next pandemic so this, is, this doesn't happen again in terms of our technology and our countermeasures. Uh, but this is also a really important task that I think that we have, we can't squander the opportunity now to, to get people to think about this. It's an interesting point that the laws might not make as much different as much difference if, if there are these emergency declarations. It sounds like maybe we need to also be having a conversation about, about government's power to declare these very general emergencies, which they, even prior to the pandemic, they seem to be doing increasingly frequently for uh, things that were of lesser and lesser concern. Yeah, um, I, I, just one thing on that. So I agree completely, like that is a real worry. But I think the more laws there are, the higher the bar to use emergency power. Because what you're saying is you're setting aside all those laws. But if there's not a lot of laws you're setting aside, I think it's easier to say, okay, we need emergency power here. And the more it's, well, why are you setting aside all those laws? The harder, it's a higher bar. It's not, it, you can overcome that bar, but it makes it a higher bar. I know that Amish has to go soon. So I thought maybe we should skip to a question that I wanted to ask both of you. Uh, and, and this concerns the, uh, the question of whether uh, lockdowns were in some sense inevitable, not only because of government's uh, uh, tendency to resort to emergency powers, but because of the fact that they are in control of so much of our healthcare system. Uh, Amish, you've, you've stressed, and I interviewed you recently, and you said the main thing that was driving the lockdowns was the desire to preserve uh, healthcare capacity. That's what the flattening the curve rhetoric was really all about. Uh, Ankar, in your paper, you suggest that even though that's true, we should have avoided lockdowns. And so I guess the question for both of you is, how plausible is it given current government control of healthcare that, that our healthcare system could have survived without these lockdowns? Uh, what, what do you both think? Let's start with you, Amish, since you have to go sooner. So I think for most of the country, we would have survived. It would have been rough. We would have had to do a lot of logistical juggling to get ventilators, to get personal protective equipment and to transfer patients around and work kind of what we call hospital coalitions where people kind of, or hospitals in, in, in the metropolitan area work together. I think we could have done that in most places. What I really worry about though was New York City. Uh, and I think it's not surprising that New York City was a place that got 
extremely hard hit. And if you look at the hospitals that got hit there, so New York City has this interesting system where they've got this corporation called the Health and Hospitals Corporation, which is run by the New York City government. And I've studied that, that, that system for some time because we looked at what happened after Hurricane Sandy, we looked at happened after hospital closures and how they dealt with the surge. And we know that those hospitals are often chronically under-resourced. They're government hospitals. They cannot hire very quickly. They are always kind of on the brink, even during severe flu seasons. They get very, very inundated during the 2017-2018 flu season where 80,000 Americans died. That was uh, one of those, those same hospitals were on the brink. So it's not surprising that those hospitals have that capacity problem. So I do think that in places like New York City, specifically those, those catchment areas for those hospitals that are, were run by the government, I think that they needed to do something to be able to decant them and support them. And I think they, those hospitals would have likely uh, collapsed or come very close to collapsing uh, with that. We didn't hear so much about the private hospitals in New York, although they were stressed. But I think that outside of New York City, I don't think we had a hospital capacity problem that wasn't manageable, uh, even though it would have been difficult. Thanks, Hamish. Uh, and, and thanks if you have to go while, uh, while Ankar is uh, also addressing this question. Um, good luck on NBC. Ankar, yeah. do you want to deal um, with the same issue? Yeah, so I think it's important. Um, certainly, my view is not, and the paper's not arguing, that government should have done nothing, even about healthcare capacity, um, particularly because it's so government controlled. If Earlier on, the government had been willing to face the facts and even just the possibility that this might be a severe outbreak. And so they should have poured money into increasing hospital capacity. So on most of the graphs, well, flattening the curve, hospital capacity was a flat line, like as though it can't be increased. Now, I know experts in the field know you can surge things and you can target it to areas um, of the country that are having severe outbreaks. But it was treated in, in the kind of popular news level discussions as it's just a flat line. The government should have been increasing that as much as possible. I mean, one of the things that was, I found really strange, but it's not strange if you think you're trying to downplay and even evade this, was why the military resources weren't brought in sooner than when once there was a worry in New York City that we're going to be overwhelmed. Why didn't they surge that kind of capacity that should be, you would think, readily available? Like if our military doesn't have medical capacity to de that they can quickly deploy in time of war, um, then something's wrong, I think, with the military. So there was things government could do that they didn't do. And I think in part because it was being denied that this is a real threat. Um, and that makes it more likely then to think, oh, when stuff starts happening, that our hospitals are being overwhelmed. So the only solution is a coercive statewide lockdown. Um, and it's so again, better law would direct government towards you have to take this seriously. You have to act early on like Taiwan. And that includes in, insofar as government controls healthcare of trying to surge capacity. Let's now talk about a a related issue, uh, another point about how lockdowns wouldn't be justified, even though uh, this time, instead of even though healthcare capacity is threatened, even though we might not have been able to 
test and track and isolate in the way that you suggest. And we've actually gotten a number of questions coming in from a variety of channels about this kind of question. So Reed, for instance, in Zoom said, isn't uh -huh. it too late uh, to test, trace, and isolate? Uh, and uh, Daniel in, uh, on YouTube was saying, uh, do you have any back of the envelope style calculations on what contact tracing would actually entail in a country with as much travel burden as the United States? So obviously, uh, not only is it a large country, but there are characteristics of this disease which suggest that it would have been spreading before anybody could have realized it, anybody could have detected it because there's so much asymptomatic spread. And so one of the surprising things in your paper, Ankar, is you say, even if government were unable to track and test at the sufficient you know, quantity, like what you saw in Taiwan, even still you think this didn't give them justification for locking things down. Can you say a little bit more about why that's the case? Um, so th there's at least two very important things. So one is thinking about what a proper public health goal is for the government. So what the government's proper health goal is. And I don't think either of the two that were offered really in during this pandemic are the right goals. So the governor of New York put it as we've got to save, basically, we've got to save every life we can from COVID-19. And so we've got a new novel virus, we've got to reduce to as close to zero as possible deaths from um, this novel coronavirus. And if you really thought of that as a public, the proper public health goal, then one government has to have enormous power to be able to, to think of itself as, as pursuing and trying to accomplish that goal. And you can think that, um, well, maybe coercive statewide lockdowns were that's the path to do it. And as Cuomo put it, 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 what he was doing was close everything and quarantine everyone. But we don't think about this in terms of other infectious diseases, uh, whether existing, like a seasonal flu, or when we get new strands of the flu, that the government's valid public health goal is to reduce to as close to zero deaths from this disease. Um, that we as individual citizens, we have to think about what, how much countermeasures are we going to deploy to try to minimize to what degree our risk from this new pathogen or existing pathogens or a new pathogen, a new, new strain of the flu virus, for instance. And e so I don't think that's a valid public health goal. And even if one thought of the public health goal is they're trying to do some kind of balancing act and whether it's balancing um, one way it was put, it was health and wealth. And particularly we're trying to balance the capacity of the healthcare system with people's ability to still live and still work and still produce wealth. Um, or if you put it as, I think the better way to put it is we're trying to balance lives and livelihoods. So we don't want too many deaths from this, but we can't destroy people's ability to, to work, to pay rent, to pay for food. So, I mean, a lockdown, if it goes on too long, you're gonna have a lot of, literally a lot of deaths from it, of people starving and so on. Um, but even there, it's, that's not government's function to do, to try to decide for individual people, okay, your life, that's what's really important. We've got to minimize the risks from this new virus for you. And if that means shutting down eight people's livelihoods, 
that's what we have to do. And it's some kind of, it's a utilitarian collectivist calculus in the end that what they're trying to do is have some kind of formula that is balancing all this. And I don't think that's the government's proper function. Our, our, the American government, whether federal or state, is not a utilitarian government, that it has this kind of control over people and it engages in these calculations and then has to exert enormous power. I mean, the only way you can carry through with these calculations is to say, we're literally stopping you from working because this person might get infected and their life counts more than your livelihoods or the other way around. I mean, a lot of the debates, Amish was bringing up Arizona and so on. It's the other way around. It's like, oh no, now we've decided that livelihoods really matter. And so people with the virus, so you can socially gather and, and it's just, it's the calculation with a different result, but it's the same kind of thing. And I don't, that's not what government's function is. It should be for sure going after actual carriers. And in, on these kinds of issues, it's not all or nothing. It's not, we find all the carriers of the virus, isolate them and so on. Or we don't, we sort of wash our hands of it and we're not gonna look for anybody. And if you think about flattening the curve, to the extent that government should think about that as like, that's not the goal, but it's a byproduct of what we're doing. The more people you identify with the virus, even if it's not everyone, and the more of them you isolate, and the more of the people they've exposed you quarantines on, you slow the spread of the virus. But you're slowing the spread of the virus by targeting people who are actual carriers who may be infecting other people who aren't. So they pose a danger to other people. And if government had kept doing that and tried to I mean, it's hard to put how bad the testing was and even explanations of what they were doing and when there would be testing. There was no strategy to it. I, mean, they, I think in the end there were lies about it, but no strategy to it. And the more there was a strategy to it, you slow the spread. And that would, if thinking about loads on hospitals, that would slow the loads, but you would be direct. It's targeted at the carriers. Not everybody in the state now is under lockdown. I'm going to ask you one more question, but before I do that, just to let people who are watching know that we will start taking your questions. A lot have come in while we've been talking. A lot of them are uh, questions for Amish, and he's had to leave, so we're not going to be able to take, because there are a lot of kind of medical questions. Yeah. We're not going to be able to take those, obviously. Uh, but again, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, we'd like to continue to encourage you to try out the super chat function. That's what we're looking at first. That's if you'd like to support this channel, consider a small donation to put your question to the top of the queue. Otherwise, we'll also start looking at questions in Zoom. And if you're in Zoom, uh, best way to pose questions is using the Q&A module. Just hover over your screen. There's a little button down in the bottom for Q&A. That's the first place we'll look. Uh, and I think, Ankar, probably we shouldn't go much more than another 30 minutes, but uh, we'll see how many questions come in and what kinds sure. they are. Sure. Um, so this last question, uh, you've sort of already answered, but I, I wanted to put a point on it because um, on the one hand, uh, both you and Amish have, have been suggesting that there's a way in which the, these lockdown uh, shelter in place mandatory orders were kind of panicked reactions by government. But something that you just said, I think brought out that it's not just blind panic uh, it's it's panic that's informed by uh, a certain view that a lot of our politicians have of what the purpose of government is. You mentioned this kind of utilitarian calculus. Yeah. And so um, is, there a, is there an interplay here between uh, the, their philosophic attitude and their panic and 
um, given the fact that even if you put a, a new law into effect, they're still going to have that philosophy. How is that going to uh, uh, affect things? Um, so, yeah, so I think there is an interplay between their philosophical predispositions and viewpoints. So sometimes it's implicit, like they wouldn't say, yeah, what I'm doing is a utilitarian calculus, but that is what they're doing. Um, and they've learned that that is justified, that this is what government should be doing. There's, the interplay is, I think, as a government official, you should find it really disturbing to have to lock down a state. That if you're really thinking about what government exists is to protect people's rights and people's freedoms. And if you think of the, the original American conception as articulated in the Declaration of Independence, that governments are instituted to secure these rights, that when you're depriving your whole state of, of most of the people, and leave aside the essential, so-called essential workers, you're depriving them of their ability to live, to work, to interact with people they want to interact, but put it a little more broadly, of their ability to make decisions for themselves, that you, as a government official, decided, no, this is what everyone has to do this. It's, as Governor Cuomo put it, it's close everything and quarantine everyone. You should find it really disturbing to have to do that um, and to think it's justified. And I think too many of the government officials, what they project is not, okay, we're doing this really reluctantly. Um, and it's because we really can't think of anything else that could be done. Um, and so, yeah, this is a real last resort, a tragic last resort. That's, I think for some, there was a bit of a projection of that, but for most it was, no, this is what government should be doing. So yes, I think in terms of getting better law here, one obstacle will be no, but this is exactly what government should do. It should engage in this kind of utilitarian calculus. It's not there to protect our rights and our freedoms. But I would think that um, in America, that argument, if it's going to win anywhere, should win in America. That no, what government is about is protecting rights and freedom. And when you see some of and read some of what the officials in Taiwan and South Korea say, they're proud of the fact, to say, and they say, I mean, they say, the government officials say this, look, we're a free society. We're trying to preserve people's freedom. We don't want lockdown of the whole country. And if government officials there can have that attitude, we can get enough government officials here to have that attitude. So it is an obstacle, but I don't think it's an insurmountable obstacle. So there's a question that Ryan posted in the chat that I think is a, a good thing, a good one to start with, and it's one that's a hot topic here in Orange County. Uh, in states that are reopening and experiencing a second wave, is government-mandated mask wearing justified? And you spoke of this very briefly in your paper in a very qualified way, and maybe you'd say a little bit more about what you said there. Yeah, so I think it's, if we're thinking about government doing this, they can, um, again, based on evidence, but if there's real evidence that masks are effective, and if one remembers early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk 
and including from government officials that masks don't make a difference. And so, so if they, if that's really what they thought the evidence was, then no, they can't say, okay, now you have to wear a mask because it's, like it's make believe that it's some kind of protection. But if there's real evidence to think, and I think there is in this case, in terms of the spread, masks reduce the rate of spread that in government uh, buildings, functions, government officials, they can say, yeah, masks now are mandatory. You can even debate in more kind of public spaces when people are walking around on the sidewalks and so on that they could mandate masks. There, it's again, so the issue of the evidence is really important because in outdoor spaces and so on, how the effectiveness of masks versus when people are working together in an enclosed space, you would, they would need the evidence to be able to do that. But that's different than from saying every private organization, person, household, uh, it's mandatory to wear masks. And that should be, if we leave aside for a moment, like really large gatherings, concert halls, sports stadiums that are full, it's that I think should be a private decision, employers, storekeepers, uh, hair salons and so on would make decisions about this. And part of it would be informed by, uh, do we not have customers because we don't have a, you have to wear masks policy. And as a result, nobody's coming into our store because that's what they want. So there would be much more individual decision outside of what government legitimately uh, or lawfully controls. Here's a question that just came in uh, on Super Chat from Christopher, a brief one, but do you agree that the responses, I assume he means government responses to the pandemic involve political calculus? Uh, I assume he's asking about, it, not, not necessarily the utilitarian calculus you were just talking about, but some uh, decision-making in light of their uh, prospects of getting reelected. Yeah, I suspect there is. Um, and it's it's part of the issue in in places like Arizona, Texas, of being very reluctant to lock down. I suspect there's a mixture of motives. One, and the more legitimate is, no, this is real economic devastation, and it's being a lockdowns inflicted on not just carriers of the disease, but everyone and their uh, including in areas where there's not much of an outbreak yet. And so, so one, it's legitimate that do, do we as government officials really have, and should we have the power to engage in this kind of control over the citizens? But I suspect there's also political calculations that this is, would be unpopular, unpopular with my base, so on, and we're, I mean, this is election season, and obviously we have a presidential election in the fall so that there's political calculation in regard to this as well. So I suspect it's a mixture of, of factors going into the decision-making. So I think this point is very relevant to your idea that this is why law is so important. Uh, if, if, if you put a constraint and a mandate on politicians, then that at least I think reduces the incentive for them to go on kind of narrow, uh, you know, naked uh, political calculation is they, they, they have to say then, look, this is the law that I'm following. And, right. and this is my job uh, as as a governor. Yeah. Um, 
There's a question that came in from Sam that I think is interesting. Do you think anybody will learn from this pandemic or will the next one play out as a repeat of this one? Obviously, that's going to be in part uh, dependent on whether or not we end up adopting the kind of policies that you're advocating here. Um, but whether that we do or not, uh, what can people learn? What will people learn from this experience? Yeah, I mean, I'm optimistic that people will learn from this. It will take conscious effort and it will take a lot of advocacy on the part of people. But this is, I mean, if this doesn't, this pandemic doesn't convince people, look, the threat of infectious disease is real and the stakes are high, like the stakes are enormous, that if you get it right, and if you look more like a Taiwan or take a South Korea, which is Taiwan is, I mean, virtually had no cases, but the way they did it. And, and I mean, the, the deaths in Taiwan are astonishingly low, but South Korea had more outbreaks. They're still dealing with outbreaks now. Um, they've had more social distancing, I think, than in Taiwan. So it's probably a more realistic case to think of the U.S., it can be a lot better than what it was in the US. And that makes a tremendous difference. So it's like, if the, if the reality of the threat, this doesn't make it sink in. And if the stakes of, if we do something better versus if we do something more like what we've done, are they're enormous in terms of health, they're enormous in terms of people's ability to live and to produce. So that it's like we, if you, this isn't an incentive to get and make things better and get better laws, better procedures, um, get a better, more independent public health departments and so on. It's hard to think what would be um, rational incentive to, to improve. And as I said, it's, it's not, um, this isn't like one of the issues that was, as it would be put as part of the cultural wars that it's people throw up their hands like, can we ever resolve this? So if I'm optimistic that, that there's enough people in public health in infectious disease who have, uh, as Amos said earlier uh, on, that it's like they've been advocating for things to be better than what this response was. And if people don't listen now to that, um, it would be, that would be very depressing. And I don't have that low a view of, of people's stature in it. Well, let me follow up on that a bit with with a, perhaps a more pessimistic uh, possibility, because uh, you've you've stressed in the paper that the, the whole rhetoric of flattening the curve comes from uh, uh, comes from the fact that government controls the healthcare system, not just because it's aiming to preserve its capacity in aiming to flatten the curve, but because they're concerned that they can't grow the capacity otherwise. And that's a problem that you don't see uh, in an actual free market context. Mm -hmm. And so my question is about what are the prospects for things getting better given the state of uh, the status of our health care system generally in this country? On the one hand, you have, you have uh, I think, people in the Democratic Party probably including Biden saying, uh, this, is, this is all the more reason that we need to have more control of government, that we need to have Medicare for all, because people are now suffering these, uh, these, the ill effects of both the disease and then having to pay for it with you know, million dollar insurance bills. 
But on the other hand, uh, you you could argue, I think, and but but nobody on the Republican side seems to be doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, that if anything, this is a lesson of the failures of government-controlled healthcare because uh, what you see, what you saw happening, especially in places like New York, was precisely the kind of uh, healthcare rationing that critics of government healthcare predicted would happen. And so, if 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 nobody comes to realize. Uh, that that's the consequence. If this doesn't get debated in our upcoming election, which it seems like it probably won't, uh, why wouldn't we expect more of this to happen again? Um, yes, so I do think it's true, and you saw this pretty early on in the pandemic, of that there, it will be used to say, yeah, we need more control of government. Healthcare will often be put as well. We need universal healthcare, which means fully government controlled, fully socialized healthcare. So there is going to be that push. And I think it's, it's destructive to healthcare, it's destructive to doctors, nurses, and it's destructive to everybody, which is basically everybody who depends on healthcare. We should be pushing towards a more private system. It should, the more it looked like the high tech industry, uh, which is enormously innovative and drives prices down. Like we, year after year after year, um, the more healthcare looked like that, the more free it was, the more it would look like that and the more we would all benefit. So that, I think that's true. The push towards more government control of healthcare, this pandemic will be used to increase that push. But if you think, again, of comparison to other countries, it's not as though Taiwan or South Korea have fully private health care. They have government control of, I mean, considerable government control of health care. But one of the lessons is if government is more focused on testing, isolating, and tracking, you don't get to the stage of worrying, oh, the whole healthcare care system is going to be overwhelmed. And so, and that step of what it would look like to, for gov our governments to really take seriously that our primary responsibility, even if they don't think it's their sole responsibility, their primary responsibility is to test, isolate, and track. The more that became, yes, that's what its primary responsibility is, the more the issues about overwhelmed healthcare would fade into the background. Because the more skilled you are at that, the less often it's going to be, oh yeah, where it's going to be overwhelmed. And notably, you think that the testing function of government is, is one that government should definitely have in this kind of situation, uh, even if it shouldn't control the rest of the healthcare industry, correct? Yes, but even there, what it means is it has this, it's tasked with this function. We've got to be able to test and if it's, we've got a real outbreak and it's approaching pandemic proportions, it's then we have to test a lot. But what that means, it, it's like in the uh, of other functions of government, it's not, okay, we control the whole, everything about testing as a result. I mean, if, if, if the military needs planes, it doesn't matter, mean, okay, we control the whole aviation industry. Um, it's, we buy planes and we work with companies that like, this is what we need and so on. So it's the same in regard to testing. And this is, Amish brought up, um, and I refer to this in the paper as well, that in South Korea, it was, they went to private businesses, enterprise and said, like, we need testing. 
we're going to buy tests from you. We need you to develop tests. And so, so government would have that role, but it's not, okay, we control all aspects of testing. You need permission for everything. Indeed, what South Korea put in is they, as a result of, of failures with MERS, uh, previous infectious disease outbreak, they put in uh, laws that made it easy for government to accelerate the development of private companies making tests and so on, so that they could do it rapidly and government would not get in the way of that. And that's what it would look like for government to take its role of testing seriously. It would be, we don't want to control everything. We need private enterprises, uh, private enterprise to develop tests. We we're going to buy tests. We're going to make it as painless as possible to get tests approved and so on. And that's what it would look like if government's taking that responsibility seriously. So you emphasize that government should administer tests to undertake its function of containing infectious disease, but that doesn't mean controlling uh, the testing industry. That's the way you think it should be. But I've, I've now heard from people who've read your paper who've said, but the government does control the testing industry through the FDA. And that's a big part of the reason why there was a, there was a, a, a snafu at the beginning, because uh, when the CDC issued its emergency notification, this had the effect of the FDA imposing new restrictions on the development of laboratory tests. And so uh, it, it looks like things start to become very systemic here in order to, in order to adopt the kinds of reforms that you're advocating for. It entails yet a cascade of other reforms. Is that accurate? And, and, and you know, what are the prospects of pushing for these other reforms at this point? Yeah, so I think, again, um, it's helpful that there's models from other countries. So I do, I do think it's new laws. It's not like one law uh, that has a few paragraphs and then, okay, that we have what we need to be prepared for future outbreaks. It's, you have to think about the laws and you would have to think about these kinds of things. How does the FDA work? What happens when uh, a pandemic is declared or an emergency is declared? What kicks in and so on? And you have to think about that. But that's exactly the kinds of things that Taiwan and South Korea thought about in terms of reforming their legal system. It's, it's as I was saying with South Korea, it's they made it pretty explicit from what I can tell and from how they describe it, that if, if we have an emergency, it's, it's we're, what kicks in is to make it easier for companies to develop tests and so on, not harder, that it, now you need more approval and more paperwork and more time. And because they know, I mean, part of the failure was like time is of the essence in a pandemic. A couple of weeks delay and so on makes a huge difference. Where you're talking about something that is spreading in a, I mean, if you're in a real pandemic in an exponential way, time is really important. But that is, you can get laws that, and so it's again not, we're going to abolish the FDA. But when a pandemic is declared, rather than all kinds of new regulations kicking in, it will be the opposite of things that are considered okay in a normal situation or they're suspended in and new things come into play. And it's, so you need real legal thought here to get it that it will work, that you have a system of laws. But it's again, I don't think of it as in comparison to trying to change laws in other areas. It's, you should be able to get a lot of support for rational law here. So if there's a systemic problem here, 
with the way that different regulatory agencies interact with each other, it sounds like what you're saying is the only way to address the problem is, is, is a systemic way. And that's yeah. what law is for. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's another super chat question that came in again from Christopher. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, related to some of the things we've just been talking about, how responsible is the centralization of medicine, including the WHO for the authoritarian heavy handed response? I'm not entirely sure what he means by throwing the WHO in there, but we have been talking about uh, government uh, control of medicine, at least in this country. Uh, given that it has that control, is this a case of controls, breeding controls, where we have government control over the healthcare industry and then in order to preserve that, we have to lock down? Is that, is that a, a symptom of that phenomenon? I mean, I think it's it's a little bit that. So it's true that it made lockdowns um, more tempting that government controls so much of healthcare. Because what will happen when people start seeing um, the the some hospitals overwhelmed as they were seen in New York City, and so it's that look, but government runs so much of this, so you guys are screwing up. And so so. To, to prevent that kind of reaction. And then if you think about election considerations and so on, it's, oh, if we shut down everything, they're not gonna tell us we did we screwed up healthcare and so on. So there is, there is an element that controls breed more controls. But in this case, I think the primary is the government was not focused on what it should be doing. It wasn't focused on testing and isolating actual carriers. And there too, there's an element of controls. Um, it's not exactly they breed more controls, but I would put it like this, that the more controls you have, the less government does what it should be doing. So the more arbitrary power it has and the more that it, it's involved in areas that I don't think it should be involved in, um, the easier it is for things that it should be doing to be lost in this enormous um, span of what government is supposed to be doing. It's, it's supposed to be running education, it's supposed to be running healthcare, it's supposed to be deciding uh, on issues of pollution, it's supposed to be uh, managing all our parkland, and you can go on and on, all our transportation infrastructure and so And there's no way government can do all these things and what often happens is the more legitimate functions, when you've got this view that government should be running everything, the, where it's not running it, where it's just protecting individuals' rights and freedoms, government just focuses less on that. Um, so it's the, the, what Amish was reporting is they've been telling them for years to do this. And so part of why it's not a priority is because all these other things have been prioritized. And half of them, I don't think government should be doing, but this is one of the worries. The more things you give to government, it's not gonna be able to do all of them. And if you're prioritizing the wrong things, you're under prioritizing the things that it should be doing. And I think that's part of what has happened here. I think we need to wrap up pretty soon sure. here. So I don't know if we're gonna be able to take any more questions, uh, but I thought I would just uh, wrap things up with the following thought, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I think some people that I've seen writing in the chat found it surprising uh, that you see, generally speaking, the solution to this problem as more law. 
there's an attitude that the more law there is, uh, the less liberty it is. But this, this point that you've just been stressing now, I think helps to bring out what's mistaken about that attitude. Um, Ayn Rand had the view that the mixed economy in which government starts to take more and more control over resources and industries is what she called a pressure group warfare, a form of pressure group warfare, because each uh, di different interest groups will, uh, will fight to see who gets access to different resources. Mm -hmm. and, and the result is something that looks a lot more like anarchy and a lot more like lawlessness. And so uh, and it sounds paradoxical to some people, but the more government does things that it shouldn't be doing, the more lawless it actually gets. And so if you want to rein that in, if you want to rein in the mixed economy, what you actually need is, is more better defined objective laws. And this is not just regarding infectious disease, but with regard to all laws. Is that an accurate way of thinking about her view? And do you agree with it? Yeah, I think that's accurate way of putting her view. Um, I agree with it. And it, if, if you put it in philosophical, like even more philosophical terms, it's that freedom requires law, that in order to have your individual rights, governments are instituted to secure and protect these, to actually have the freedom to think for yourself, to speak, um, to earn property, to pursue your happiness. These are the rights you should have, but to actually have them, you need a government that's securing and protecting them. And the only form of government that will secure and protect them is a government that functions by law, not by the arbitrary power of men. So she was very much, Iran was very much in favor of this idea that it's, you want a government of laws, not of men, but you want the right laws that secure and protect your freedom. So law is not the enemy. Law is your friend if you're on the side of genuine freedom. Excellent. Thank you, Ankar. Uh, and thanks for joining us uh, for this discussion today. Thank you also for uh, writing this really enlightening paper. Uh, in just a second, I'm going to give people uh, more information on how they can find that paper and how to follow up on it. So thanks, thanks again for joining yeah, us. Thanks, Ben, and thanks everyone for joining today. So Ankar's paper, again, which is the pro-freedom approach to infectious disease, can be found on our website, uh, the, the website of New Ideal. Uh, for those of you who are in Zoom, I'm putting the URL in the chat again. Uh, I'll also go ahead and put it in the uh, chat on YouTube, and I can do it uh, also on uh, Facebook. Um, but it's the uh, newideal.einrand.org slash pandemic response. And uh, I, it's a 30-page paper, but it's, I think, a very enlightening paper. It goes into all kinds of details uh, on this general topic, on the, the role of the government in uh, the last few months dealing with the pandemic, what it shouldn't have done, what it should have done. Uh, we definitely want to encourage you to read this and to share it widely uh, and to use it as much as you can uh, in your communication with people you think matter, uh, whose minds needs to, need, need to be changed. There was also a shorter op-ed piece that you can uh, find soon. Uh, it was published in the Orange County Register that I wrote summarizing some of the main points of the paper. Uh, so please, please take a look. Otherwise, if you enjoyed today's uh, webcast, 
Uh, if you want to follow more of what we put out at New Ideal and the New Ideal live webinars, please subscribe to this channel on YouTube. Just click that red subscribe button. And if you'd like to get notifications for whenever we go live or whenever new videos are posted, please also be sure to click that little bell. Uh, and last of all, we, we always look at the email that we get from our viewers, uh, both uh, thoughts on the episodes that we've done, also suggestions for future episodes we might do. Uh, please consider sending us an email, dropping us a line at newideal at einrand.org. I definitely take a look at all those messages that come in and so do a lot of our other scholars. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week with more uh, from New Ideal Live, analyzing uh, the topics and uh, events that uh, move the world and the objectivist philosophical perspective on them. Thanks, everyone, and see you again soon. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.